Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things to that end. I get guests on the show to talk about their own experiences of writing. I sometimes do little workshops where you can uh, do a bit of writing and I set you challenges every day and... I also talk about my own writing and sometimes I look at listeners' first pages and give feedback on how they can make them better. I've also been doing an on-again, off-again sort of continuing series called Writing a Novel, where I have a go at writing a novel. Now, I am a novelist. Weird that I immediately step into that as an identity rather than saying the more accurate phrase, which is that I have written several novels two of which have been traditionally published i've also got another two books traditionally published one non-fiction one poetry and i've got another non-fiction book due out at the time of recording in just under a year so that's my background in it and i thought look i want to write something maybe i can i guess find the time for it by combining it with the podcast but also maybe it will be an interesting thing I'm always looking for new ways I can push the podcast new areas where I can cover material that we haven't covered obviously the art of writing stories is nigh infinite in terms of its scope and the ways that you can approach subjects and the ways that we can return to things but I thought maybe this is an angle that we haven't looked at before an honest bit about the process of writing a novel and I could kind of invite you inside my process such as it is whether I have a process or not I don't know anyway this will be the sixth episode part six of that series if you haven't listened to the episodes before I suggest you head back I've made a playlist on my SoundCloud page my SoundCloud page is soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Clare but um episode 13 of this current season of death of a thousand cuts season four um is the first episode that's writing a novel part one but if you there's a playlist writing a novel uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to today's episode as well but if you search tim claire writing a novel you'll also find it but i've made a playlist with all of the episodes in so you could if you haven't listened to episode one you can either stop now and go back and listen to that and work your way through or you're happy you're 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 not I'm not suggesting you're necessarily happy that's not my place to say that but you are very welcome to jump in here listen to today's episode then decide if you want to circle back and listen to the contextualizing episodes before it has been a while since I updated this it's actually been 10 episodes have come between the last episode and this one 10 episodes of the podcast I've been putting out other things I've put out some talks been putting out a couple of uh, me looking at listeners first pages a little bit of a writing ramble and I've got to be honest with you what is going on is I've been having a crisis of faith I've been panicking I've been backing away from it I've been dragging my feet I've been thinking maybe this isn't something I want to do because I tried writing it and I immediately my self-critic started riding up, rising up. And part of the reason I wanted to do this was to force myself to overcome my self-critic and just write through something on the basis that, look, if I don't, if I write this whole thing and it's dreadful, it doesn't matter because we've been given an 
honest kind of insight. I, I don't honestly know how super interesting and helpful this is to listeners. You know, part of me worries. I don't like the phrase self-indulgent because I think we should always be compassionate and lovely to ourselves. And indulging things we're interested in is something that so few of us do. You know, this idea that people are oh, you know, so self-indulgent. A lot of the time, actually, the 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 great moments of, I suppose, giving into our lesser our, le- our less laudable tendencies are ones where we don't bother doing something for fear of looking silly or embarrassing ourselves or you know being shamed and I think that speaks poorly of us that we think that if anyone else were trying to create something and they wanted to share it we'd be going oh god that person's a bit self-indulgent I mean come on we've got so little time together on this planet let's be nice to each other but I, you know I'm not sure that it's intrinsically entertaining and I'm still sort of taking soundings as I go go on whether this is a good idea for a series or whether just being invited into someone's writing shed and and uh, given access to the unexpurgated version of writing a novel might actually be not intrinsically interesting even if you're interested in writing a novel even if it's something that you're doing yourself it's not a spectator sport i suspect novel writing or at least it hasn't been historically on the other hand few people trying to write a novel give other people access to their process especially if they're a professional novelist you know it's quite rare and it's you know the process is quite unflattering and embarrassing at least it is for me at least that's how I feel about it that I I, I don't know what I'm doing that I kind of shouldn't be doing it I feel like an imposter I, I just stumble through it and and people sometimes or at least when I've heard it from other writers I assume it's a put on that they're being a little bit cute you know they're going cool I don't really know they're scratching their head digging their toe into the carpet oh look at me lummox I you know dear me I'm just here guessing my way through it says the best-selling author I don't know what I'm doing I think I just write a load of rubbish some days and I, 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 I often think that they're being coy and performatively modest that's my prejudice that I apply to that as I go come on you don't really feel like that and I fear that when I talk about it that maybe other people from the outside have got a perception of me as vaguely knowing what I'm doing and so when I say it it seems somehow insincere or they think really I don't feel that very keenly, you know, that I sit down and go, well, that's going to need tidying up later. That's not that's not ready for the for printing, you know, that that's my level of not enjoying it. But I really genuinely. Oh, God. Anyway, I had a try at writing an opening and um, and then I just stopped, and then I couldn't. I don't know what to do. So what I thought I'd do this episode is maybe read out the first 500 words that I've written and then try and figure out what I feel uncomfortable about you know why I feel uncomfortable about it or what I'm feeling what I'm experiencing and then try and think of a way forward because I started thinking about other novels and I started going well maybe I should write something else and it strikes me that that is a a bit of a trap right because I'm I'm the danger is that you I cycle through this process, exact same process again. I don't see that 
I don't start writing it down and it's not perfect. And then the vultures of my inner critic just start come in this kind of black billowing cow cloud out of the uppermost turret, the spire of the dark castle uh, and, and, and come raining down on me, uh, cawing and sc screeching in their guttural ruined voices as they um, tear the flesh from my rightly bones. I, I, it just seems to me to paraphrase, I can't remember who it was. I think I quoted this in a previous episode, but um, from the Apollo missions. But if you want to go to the moon, at some point you've got to go to the moon. <laughs> like you can't run diagnostics and tests and make models forever. At some point you've just got to do it. And if you fuck up and it goes badly, like that is always a risk. You either go, I'm not going to do this the pain of it, the feeling of being exposed that, that it gives me, the sense that I'm not good enough is too painful, in which case, fine, you can stop, that's allowed, or you do it. But to keep yourself in this perpetual holding pattern of feeling all those things but not doing it is clearly the worst of both worlds. Now, there may be other options, you know, between just like ploughing forward or giving up, or staying in this middle, I think it's always as a creative person to reduce anxiety. The more we can consider that there might be more options than we've allowed ourselves to believe in is a good way to reduce anxiety, potentially. But for today, I just want to read out what I've done. And I'm not doing this fishing for reassurance. I think there is a time and a place for reassurance in the writing process, but it's not via a kind of anonymous cry for help <laughs> via a podcast. You can do that with a friend that you trust. And I think sometimes feedback, it's its legit to go, I want reassurance feedback. Pick a couple of things that you like. I know it's not finished. I do not want you to start picking it apart yet. I'm not at that stage in the process. I want to finish this novel. I just need someone to read it and tell me it's not crap. And you may think that that invalidates the reliability of, the, of the, the feedback that you then receive. And I would say, yeah, to an extent, of course. Um, but sometimes it's just what you've got to hear, right? Anyway, I'll, I'll read out what I've done. Because now apparently my podcast is, well, no, part of my podcast apparently is just a, <laughs> would be a great format for, for the podcast. Maybe it could be a workshop where everyone turns up and then the tutor supposed to be running the workshop just admits that, <laughs> God, I'm, oh, I've been feeling really dark lately, really bummed out. Um, can I read you something I've done and you just all shut up and listen? No, of course, I, I'm. what I'm trying to do is not create a distinction between me in some kind of pedagogical role as published author and and you as a listener who's just like some shit muncher who doesn't know what they're doing and and we're kind of different species and if you listen to me enough maybe you could ascend to where i am which is just a permanent retirement in elysium as I kind of like poo out these 
marshmallowy clouds of perfect stories with no effort whatsoever. That isn't how it is for me. I'm sure there are authors who can put in some effort. Sure, they have to turn up at the laptop, but it's not a constant wrestling with the sense that they're rubbish. And the realisation that actually sometimes that sense is right. Because if it, if it were always wrong, and actually you did like always write perfect stuff, at some point you could just go, oh, this is just me, and switch it off, right? The problem is, I've written whole novels that turned out to be shit, that I, in the back of my mind, I thought they'd be shit. And then I sent them out, and they were shit. And nobody liked them. And then I read them back later and went, oh, this is shit. That's why I thought it was shit. That was what, that was what that, that, that doubt that I was feeling was because the content was bad. And, you know, I had some poor periods of mental health where I kind of put all my hopes and dreams, I'd, I'd kind of pegged to something I'd written doing well. And and then I sort of got into this thing where I was going, am I crap or am I just being self-critical? Or maybe I'm being really self-critical. And then it turns out that the bit wasn't very good. And, and then the self-criticism is reinforced. So was that trying to save you? It's not easy. And sometimes I see people who kind of like, oh, you've got to keep writing. you got to do And then I read their stuff and I go, well, you should have been more self-critical because I don't like this. And if I put that out, I'd be miserable about it because I, I don't think it's a good, I don't think it's good writing. And that probably makes me a terrible, awful person, right? Or it doesn't make me a terrible, awful person, but it may be a, a flawed, self-destructive and unnecessarily mean perspective to take it may be ultimately just useless and it may be prioritizing my taste above other people's right like I'm the only one who can see that these books are not up to snuff they're not what I'd do but what I would do a lot of the time is just not write rather than risk being exposed as not always getting it right you know I was the kid back in school who was often at the very top of the class in terms of attainment and you know when I did my GCSEs and A-levels at the top of the year I got the highest marks out of any boy in my school for GCSEs and then I got three A's for A-level I was accepted to Oxford and I turned them down but I also avoided anything that I found difficult because it became more about maintaining the image that I was clever, gifted, in some way that these things came easily to me, rather than taking on that. I know Carol Dweck's uh, growth mentality has become very popular of late, and I'm sure that there have been some robust critiques of it amongst the psychological and pedagogical community where it doesn't hold that idea that you don't praise children for being clever, you should praise them for effort. But I certainly learned that effort was something to be ashamed of because it meant you were struggling, it meant you weren't clever and my whole identity was based around being clever. Being good at something, you know. Being a writer, ultimately. And it's bloody hard to grow up and realise that this thing that you've given your life to, you find flipping difficult. It doesn't come easily to you. You don't feel like a natural storyteller. It doesn't feel of a piece with your identity. God, I love stories. God, I love them. I love creating worlds. I'm kind of mad for it. 
but am I naturally good at it? No. And I create stuff that often alienates, you know, people I send it to. They're just like, I don't like it. And sometimes people like it. And then I look back at it, I go, I don't like it. And I don't know what's, I don't quite know what's going on there. Whether it's learned, whether it's, you know, a history of worrying about these things kind of burns grooves and habits into your brain and it can be unlearned whether you just write and write and write and you just have to silence it and sometimes it'll be crap but you know watching out for that doesn't help you you can only write the things I don't know now I am working on a non-fiction book at the moment so it is certainly true that my attention has been split so not to sort of play the angst card too heavily onto the table I don't want to wring my hands too performatively you know I have been finishing one non-fiction book you know signing off on the final edits and bits and pieces with admin around that and then working on a new one in the very early stages that I haven't pitched to anyone yet I haven't you know got a commission for so it may never see the light of day it's just something I'm working on that I decided to keep going with I wanted to write um so this hasn't been my only I haven't just been sitting in my office bricking it but that's where I am and I'll read this bit and then we can maybe reflect on where I am and and what what I think my next step could be because I well look the one thing is I bet I uh, have you ever started writing something had an idea that you were initially excited about became a bit nervous as you thought about actually committing it to the page then wrote a little bit of it something got in the way you kind of like for one reason or another you put it down but you came back to it later and you weren't sure about it and then you never went on with it has that ever happened to you because I bet I'm I bet I'm not the only one I would be willing to bet a sizable amount of money and I don't think any bookies in the land would take that bet because Of course, this happens to a lot of people and it's invisible, right? This is the availability bias, right? That when we, when authors talk about writing, they're generally talking, they're often talking in the context of a new book coming out. They're often being asked about the process of the book that got published. Also, the reason that they're given media space in the first place, whatever format that is, including places like this podcast, is because they've written a book finished it got it to an agent that agent has got it to a publisher that publisher has put it out so this is survivorship bias right that the, 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 these are the people who these are the books that we talk about are the books by default that, that were finished that made it through and since those are the only ones we know about when we think about writing we make these kind of rough guesstimates in our head about what it should look like and how much effort it should be based really only on the successes because all the failures are invisible to us we don't get to see them there's no shelf space given over to unfinished novels there's no shelf space given over to you know the names of the authors who who tried doing a novel and something came up in their life or they became panicky about it or the story didn't work and the contracts aren't given to those people interviews aren't done with those people We just don't hear about it. So we have this whole conception of the writing process that's crazily skewed. It's like... It's like there's a news team at the bottom of Niagara Falls that interviews people 
who've just gone over the falls in a barrel asking about how they did it and their successes never talking about <laughs> as these as these lifeless corpses drift past them as they stand on the bank having a conversation talking about yeah no i found it hard yes it was a bit painful going over the falls i feel bruised but i'm all right while meanwhile behind them flinders and cadavers drift down the river by the dozen by the hundreds by the thousands and 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 still more people stand at the top deciding that they're not going to go over because that would be bananas that's not represented in our discussions They put the mic to the person at the bottom and they say, well, what's the secret to going over Niagara Falls in a barrel? Because you were quite lucky. Uh, I think you make your own luck, they say, as corpses drift behind them, skulls bashed in. Of course you need luck, but luck only works if you go over the falls. Fuck you. Excuse you. Of course you think that. But you're only speaking to yourself and you have no... Of course you'd emphasise your own agency in that situation. Because if you didn't, you'd lose your mind. That's what humans do. It's called the fair world hypothesis. We tend to attribute to fairness and agency what is better explained by dumb luck because as was suggested by the originator of the fair world hypothesis, his name temporarily escapes me. You know, one cannot, st I, I, and I paraphrase, one, one cannot stay sane in a world governed by a schedule of random reinforcements. We try to make sense out of these things. Now, of course, there are things you can do, and of course you have to have finished the novel, but there's all sorts of barriers and privilege and blah, 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 blah. And I don't, I don't ever want to completely strip away agency from people saying, that, well, this barrier is in front of you in publishing, and this barrier is in front of you in publishing. And if you're working class, publishing is going to be f fucking 10 times harder to get into because there's all sorts of upper middle class factional funny handshake bullshit that that, 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 you, that you're not going to have those connections necessarily from all these people who kind of know each other you, you know you're you're not if you if you if you're a you know if you're a person of color and you're trying to get into publishing there's going to be all sorts of um implicit unspoken and occasionally directly uh, explicit spoken uh, prejudice uh, against you and what you're doing and you're going to face that look I, those things are all true but i think that can be so disempowering if we talk about it too much and this is the flip side of what i was just saying um that you won't like does it help you to at what point do you have to go these things exist but let's focus on what we can control and let's try to help each other and let's try to change the system as well as well as you doing what you can do now and you controlling what you can control now because we do not have yet, or you personally do not have a big enough lead lever and a solid place to stand to lift the world of publishing on your lonesome. And I think 
you have to focus on what you can control otherwise you'll go bananas and and I'm, as i and I, I you know as i have in well publicized style had what we used to call breakdowns um because i felt so stressed and because i tried so much and because i couldn't manage it you know so i'll read this bit and then we'll re reflect a little and i'll think about how how i need to go forward from here because i do want to continue partly because i don't want to let people down and i feel a bit silly and that was kind of why i start one of the reasons i started this was to give me if not accountability then to leverage my social anxiety against my performance anxiety right to make me feel god people are going to think i'm a massive twat if i don't at least give this like a have a reasonable innings if i just give up straight away i'm going to look like such a baby like such a fucking part-timer like such a whinger if i don't like turn up a bit like that's just lazy and feckless could listen to the language that i use about myself though when i when i actually just without thinking give you my inner monologue i wonder if it's worth listening to your inner monologue occasionally not listening to as in attentively obeying nodding your head saying yes boss but just letting it speak listening from a distance because sometimes you go oh fuck that's is that a good thing to say to myself because it doesn't sound like it right so the 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 idea for the novel is about a monarch who gets assassinated and then resurrected by forces they do not know the provenance of and they have a limited time alive or resurrected before they'll return to uh the uh the, the grave from whence they came and they are going to try to figure out who assassinated them and seek revenge so i guess like it's it's kind of like a fantasy setting and i i imagine it as being like a cross between a christmas carol and kill bill and the idea was we've been wrestling over the gender of the monarch i think in this version i've made her a queen i have if you listen to the previous episodes i had some worries about that that i explained in i hopefully a nuanced and sensitive way and in, in how how these things inflect and you know what you're trying to go for and in the end i've just made 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 the, made her a queen for this bit and we'll just see so the title is the only good queen on, on the, you know on the basis that i'm trying to i thought you know because the only good king it maybe it fits a bit maybe it's a bit more obvious but i guess the only good queen because it's the only good queen is a dead queen and she's a dead queen is she a good queen? I, I, I sorely doubt it. And and, and then the, I had the opening, like, quotation. So this bit, you know, the only good queen is the title. And then the little, I don't know what they call it, a monograph or whatever. Monocle, obviously. Uh, no, yes, that's. I think you'll find the correct term is a, mon, is a monobrow. Um, 
the little opening italicized fake quotation says once there was a storyteller who could reduce whole taverns to helpless laughter with a single line all her stories began the same way once upon a time there was a good queen so that's my little don't know whether the political subtext comes across i'm not gonna sorry i'm not gonna make nervous editorial remarks throughout and then this is the section that i've written so far off with his head the executioner's axe fell in a silver crescent and sliced through the neck of the prone and manacled child the head dropped into a wooden chute and rumbled down into the waiting basket a cheer went up queen abraxia picked it up by a horn hmm surprisingly light she marched to the edge of the balcony and brandished it at the crowd Citizens of Retvitza, she said, her voice booming across the square. I now declare the 13th annual Krigsfest open. She tossed the dripping head under arm. They fell on it like wolves. Out of the decapitated corpse began to flow steaming red, ruby red glog. It ran down the chute and filtered through the basket into an enormous wooden trough. She pulled a cloak around her and turned from the crowd. Music had started up, martial tunes on flutes and drums. An orderly dressed in long furs passed a ladle through the pungent liquor and decanted it into a mug. Glog, your majesty? Oof, now you're talking. She could do with a little something to take the edge off the evening's bite. Snowflakes shone in the peachy glow of witch lights hanging from stalls and the ground was covered in fresh powder that squeaked beneath her boots. She reached for the mug. A bony-fingered hand slapped it from the orderly's grasp. Seldom! Are you out of your fucking mind? The old man produced a red handkerchief with a flourish and, wipe, flourish and wiped his dripping nose. It might have been poisoned, Majesty. I watched him draw it from the trough. A thin coating on the ladle itself, Majesty. Or in the mug. That could be true of literally anything. She slammed a palm down on the wooden railing surrounding the balcony, knocking snow down into the square below. This, for example, might be absolutely lousy with spider venom. Seldom blinked over his spectacles regarding the rail. In his outsized, fur-trimmed coat and hood, he rather reminded her of a baby vulture in its nest. Spider venom denatures on contact with the air within three minutes, Majesty, and you're wearing your gloves. Honestly. Without thinking, she went to cover her face with her palm. Seldom winced. She thrust her hand towards him, wriggling her fingers. Ooh, poison! My sole animating principle is the interests of our nation, Majesty. As your Chamberlain, I have a... Right. Abraxia stepped up to the trough and shrugged off her cloak. Someone hold my hair back. I'm going in. An orderly stepped in and began gathering her hair from about her shoulders. Stop that at once, Seldom began shuffling towards them, swatting at the air. Her Majesty obviously isn't being serious. I am deadly serious. If you take another step, I shall make you sing ballads in the fool's tawny as a penance. And you, she turned to the fellow clutching her hair. If I don't come up within ten seconds, pull. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Majesty. She looked down at her reflection in the swirling wine. Orange segments and cinnamon sticks bobbed to the surface, erupting from her face like boils. The heat of the rising steam felt pleasant against her cheeks. Her nostrils tingled with the heady mix of spices. Her double grinned. How good it felt to be alive. She dipped her head and drank like a horse.
So that's my opening bit. Car, I just... So there's a few bits that just make set my teeth on edge at the moment. And I don't think it's a good idea to write 500 words of your work and then go and do a death of a thousand cuts style fucking forensic analysis of it. And I use the term forensic pointedly because it ends up being like a post-mortem, right? You like, you're killing it. You are getting the scalpel out and you're opening it in a way that it cannot survive the procedure. And I'm not sure... I, I know few authors who advocate that kind of immediate sort of looping back upon yourself. Some of them do. I think particularly literary authors have a tendency to like write next session. They'll go back and edit what they wrote before, kind of like refine the voice. And what they're looking for is is voice more than anything else before they go on to the next bit because the voice is what informs it. And the hope is, the theory is, that by doing that constant refinement, you slowly develop the voice and it gets slowly easier, not in a perfectly curvilinear fashion. You don't, you, you're not continually and exponentially improving. Some se sessions, you, you, you'll have just kind of gone off piste and hit a bum note and you'll have to backtrack and some sessions you'll be flying but 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 gradually taken as an average your narrative voice will improve over time from that refinement that work that attention going back so you edit as you go and then theoretically at the end you have the pass that you do is going to be the edit that you do will be lighter than it would have been otherwise because you've been continually checking in I think that's probably difficult to sustain if, like me, you have a tendency towards self-criticism. Like the problem is I like self-criticism. I think it's a quality in the sense of, if you said, to, you know, because self, you know, silence the self-critic. Well, do you have taste? Do you have standards? Are you conscientious? These are all great things. Do you look at your work and... Can you identify ways you can make it better? A fucking amazing talent for a writer to have. So I have hesitation about talking about silencing the inner critic. Because one, the more you start like trying to gag and bind the inner critic and drown them like a sack of kittens the more they'll fight back, the more they'll kick and scream. They're only trying to help you. And fuck, you need them. You need taste. You need standards. You need warnings. You need abilities to gate. Like, how are you gauging? How do you evaluate? How do you look at your work and say, is this what I wanted to do? How do you have that back and forth, those iterations? How do you create you have a hypothesis, you have a model of what you'd like to do. You have a hypothesis, this is the way the story should be to produce a good outcome. Then you test those models by writing. But then there should be a ping-ponging at some stage where you look at what your aim was. You look at what you've actually produced. You, you did your hypothesis of what you should write. Produce something that is in line with your standards. If not, you have to go back and refine your assumptions, refine the model. 
and then try it again with the new refined model based on the feedback you've got from testing in the real world. All of that seems like non-toxic, perfectly healthy way of approaching a creative project, right? That's fine. I don't think we should pathologize that. The idea that you're just going to take a lump hammer to the instrument panel of your light aircraft and smash the altometer because it keeps beeping at you. F flash the fucking fuel gauge because occasionally there's like a red light beeping at you. You need those things. At some level, you need those. Th at some levels, those are lifesavers. You wouldn't want to take off in a plane where all the warning lights, all the instruments have been smashed up because you didn't want to be distracted by your inner aviation critic. That would be the true pathology. That would be a recipe for disaster, if you'll excuse the cliche. But there is a time and a place and these they are tools. And if you were unable to look at anything but the needle on the fuel gauge, if you were unable to look at anything but the altometer. I'm assuming that altometer is the term for a, a meter that shows your altitude. I'm not. It may surprise you to hear a licensed pilot. And so I don't know. <laughs> it's like, but I thought I thought the whole premise of this podcast was that Tim Clare, licensed pilot, poet, author, and mentally ill person. He's He's the, he's the, Tim Clare, the anxious pilot, just like, just like the mad stuntman in, in the, in the 1990s. Tim Clare, the anxious pilot, poet, author. You mean to say all this time? Yes, I do. Imaginary, high status, aghast listener. Yeah, I'm not a pilot. I don't know what an altometer... If I, I, it could be. I, who, who knows? It doesn't matter. Well, there's a pilot listening now who's frustratedly shouting at their uh, podcasting service. It's either an altometer. Get on with the show. All right. All right. We're not all licensed pilots. And, you know, frankly, given the state of... Given the climate crisis... It's probably a good thing we're not. I know it's been a difficult couple of years with you, what with the grounding of the fleets and stuff. I, I the, you know, the the pandemic has been hard on us all. Imaginary pilot, imaginary high status pilot. I mean, you kind of sounded kind of sounded like a wing commander there. But um, anyway, my point being, you know, there's we 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 use the if you were looking at these instruments all the time and not concentrating on like where you are going that would be another kind of pathology so obviously there's got to be a balance there's got to be we've got to check but not to the exclusion of everything else and in a first draft i would suggest and i think this is incredibly uncontroversial but i'll just suggest it anyway just so we're in the land of nuance here that you know you you are better off doing more creating than evaluating and then as time goes on, especially once you finish that first draft, you can kind of shift the balance towards the evaluation phase and your creative spurts happening 
in response to that in particular areas. And so we start off very, very, very cre creation heavy with the evaluation mode slight. And I, I suspect there are some people who don't really use that self inner critic very much at all. And then later on, that inner critic is coming out and helping you check that you're producing something that, you know, just like it's hard to do a decent sketch while you're blindfolded. Part of what you're doing when you look at your own work is constantly getting feedback from what the movement of your hand is producing and you're adjusting. And I think that's fine. So the opening sentence was a bit of dialogue off with his head, which is like a joke, right? Immediately I started with like a gag. So maybe that's, maybe it's okay to do that in a sense. Although it ends up being an unattributed piece of dialogue. Like I don't say that the, did the fucking queen, like, like I think the idea was that the queen is saying that, that Queen Abraxia says that ceremonially. And then this executioner who isn't made clear whether that is, you know, there's a there's a bunch of stuff that's like a little fake reveal here that I think is ambiguous. But she says off with his head. It's such a joke immediately. She we, she's like a cartoonish joke queen. Does is is it a joke in this world in this fantasy world? Because they don't have Alice in Wonderland presumably. So it's not like she can go off with his head and everyone's like that's a funny uh, uh, Alice. Well, technically, Alice is it Alice in Wonderland? It is Alice in Wonderland. The Red Queen. On the chessboard is Alice through the looking glass. The Disney cartoon combines the two. Anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole, which is definitely from Alice at Wonder in Wonderland. So at least I got some Lewis Carroll knowledge to show off there. Little known fact down the rabbit hole comes from Alice in Wonderland. Um, but off with his head, right? So... It's like a wink to the audience. So four words into this and I'm making an intertextual wink to the audience, not a terribly sophisticated one, thus damaging the like believer. I haven't established my reality yet. And I'm already like, eh, here's a little quote from another from another place. And like that is so risky. Now, I we've discussed before times when that what was that what was that absolutely bloody dreadful will smith urban fantasy it was it was bright i knew it was i thought bright and i just wanted to check so a few years ago that was he will smith was in that it was like a if you didn't see it it was like a cop drama crossed with urban fantasy so will smith was a cop in a uh, in a in a kind of like a bit like our contemporary reality except that all sorts of fantasy creatures from traditional fantasy settings exist and he was a cop partnered with an orc and um and and there's like a history of the orcs being persecuted so it seems to be talking about racial politics, but it did so in a series of sort of like different groups were coded 
the elves seemed to be kind of the elites, but they were kind of coded in such bizarre, inconsistent ways that it just was super. It was like bad. It didn't make sense. And then, like, you would have to do it so well for that not to be offensive. In any case, at some point during it, well, early on, one of the first things we see Will Smith's character as a cop do is come out onto his porch and there's a fairy there and he beats it to death with, a, like, a broom or, like, he, 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 he bludgeons it with a broom and shouts, fairy lives don't matter today. So the implication there is clearly like a, a nod towards the Black Lives Matter movement. Right? So I'm, I'm laughing because it's so ter- so terribly judged and that no one called that out. Least of all Will Smith, like they didn't go. So was so is there a Fairy Lives Matter movement in this world? Are we to understand that there have been a series of fairy deaths like what level of consciousness like did he just like did he just murder like a sentient being on his porch for no reason is there a like is the fairy lives matter movement is there been a series of has there been a history of police brutality are we supposed to see a parallel between fairies and the extrajudicial murders of people of colour in contemporary America? Like, are a, 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 a fairies supposed to be? Why are you giving us that? Right, Because there must be a movement. If he's saying fairy lives don't matter, that he's shouting it. There must be a fairy lives matter movement which suggests that there have been killings of fairies and that people have enough that there is a movement trying to save them. Are they people? Because if they're not, and you're drawing an explicit parallel with the Black Lives Matter movement, and fairies aren't really pe- aren't really comparable to hu- to humans in terms of their value, they're not really sentient beings in the same way, such that you might smash one to death with a broom on your porch without compunction, because they're more like a kind of pest, a kind of invasive pest, uh, you know, like in Labyrinth where we see hoggle um using a kind of fly spray to kill off fairies are they like an invasive pest is that because then if you're drawing an explicit parallel with the black lives matter movement i'm sure you understand this right but i'm just laying it out here this is what i would say to the writers signing off on this. then are you suggesting that we should be seeing human beings in our world black people as an invasive but of course not of course you can't be saying that of course what actually you meant this to be was just like a kind of like an edgy line that we show like will smith doesn't take any shit and his character is not like especially high-minded but it doesn't make like the world building it's nodding towards just doesn't make any fucking sense at all and and immediately all we're doing is thinking about that and not the movie. Which is probably a good thing because it was shite. But a similar, I'd say less um hate crimey problem exists with my opening line, off with his head, 
in that it's like, well, does what's that supposed to mean who's well of course we don't know who's saying it so we can't get a joke out of it anyway but it starts off with his head and it's like oh that's a kind of queen line isn't it that was like the the queen of hearts that was it the queen of hearts in alice in wonderland you can stop screaming at your preferred podcasting apparatus now she she was she she would she was there were she was constantly just sending people to be executed because they were failing her in some way. She was kind of like a mad, shrewish harridan, right? That's her, and, 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 and a kind of mad monarch. So I'm immediately playing into that trope. It's making us think of another book. I'm nodding towards it, and uh, that is that clever and funny? I don't know. We don't have anything. So then we go, the executioner's axe fell in a silver crescent. It probably fucking didn't. Like, it, it just, like, it's an axe. And I've gone, oh, how can I make this interesting? I'll put in a silver crescent. Did it? Did it fall in an anime crescent? Did it just, like, fall? The executioner's act, axe fell. That's probably what happened, right? And sliced through the neck of the prone and manacled child. Prone and manacled child. So I suppose, like, at least it ends on child. So we're like, oh, child! So I've gone, jokey reference to a children's book. We're beheading a child. Oh, God, Tim, that's a good idea. Why don't we do a fucking... What, look, why don't we do a fantasy book? But here's the thing. You thought it was all about noble knights and magic. But what if it was a little bit seedy and, dare I say it, grimdark? A grimdark fantasy world, if you will. What if some of the characters are a little bit seedy and a little bit cynical? And, uh... And... and what, it, I mean, how fucking incredibly, oh my gosh, it's it's just so, the executioner's axe fell in a silver crescent and sliced through the neck of the prone and manacled child. It's so Garth Marenghi, right? Like, it, it's so like, can you handle it? The blood, red coppery blood and bits of sick. Like, it's that level of, like, can you handle my grimdark? I'm being humorous while talking about a child getting its head cut off. Did, really? Because I, it feels a bit try-hard to me. It feels a bit like you you probably were... You, you piece of shit. You were probably sitting down thinking there was going to be a wizard and a puckish gnome. But no, a child, a child, the head dropped into a wooden chute. The head rolled down a wooden chute. You don't... The head dropped into a wooden chute and rumbled down into the await, waiting basket. The head rumbled down a wooden chute into the awaiting basket. We can understand that it must have detached from the body at that stage. You don't have to fucking do like blow for blow block. You're not... A cheer went up went up what an awful way to end that sentence but anyway like so someone someone we don't know who has said off with his head we're never told the executioner's axe falls and chops a child's head off and the head rolls down into a basket and the crowd cheered would have been better way because we would have ended with the cheer and we'd have established a crowd rather than saying a cheer went up so just a cheer just happens (laughs) 
and we end up end with the end that paragraph with the word up. Fascinating. Queen Abraxia picked it up by a horn. What the cheer? Because because the nouns that we've got to choose from, in reverse order, Tim, are cheer, basket, shoot, and then we get to head. So how are we supposed to know that that little pronoun it is about the head well i know because i'm writing it and then you go by a horn because a cheer's just gone up queen of praxia picked it up by a horn she picked up the intangible cheer so picked so again what i've tried to do there is go she picked up the child's head by a horn a what a horn Ooh. A ch- the child has a horn. World building. Brilliant. Are you, can you handle it? So I'm just like, uh, just a, I, we just started the book and I'm like trying so hard. I'm doing like 50 backflips going off with his head. Pretty funny. The executioner's act. Pretty gritty. Chopped through a child's head and the child, not only that, but the child was manacled. To add cr- cruelty and indignity upon the execution. They were manacled in place. In case you thought they were voluntarily submitting. And then the head rumbled down a wooden shoot. And the crowd, far from being shocked, cheered. And she pricked up the child's head, the innocent child. But it's got a horn! Oh no! Reveal! So, like, I'm taking the piss. But, like, I understand the positive intent behind all of those decisions. But... The ultimate sort of thing that we get out of that is just like, it's just hack and shit, I think, personally. And I'm allowed to say that about my own work. I would never say that about some, you know, something I was reading on the show. It doesn't make me a bad person. But what the fuck? Like, is that good? Hmm. Surprisingly light. Is it? I know, I mean, I suppose I'm trying to establish that we're in her interiority, but is that... I mean, perhaps if we want... Because, look, here's the thing that may not even be clear from all that shit that I've written. Is that this is a ceremony where... it's not. I can't even remember now, looking back, whether that... I, I guess it's a real person dressed as an executioner... I think, might be a model, but the child with the horns is a, it's just a, it's just a dummy. And what happens is when she opens the fair, an axe comes down, chops this kind of fake monster child's head off. And then this mulled wine type substance like starts pouring out and the fair's open, right? So it's like burning a guy on Guy Fawkes night or, you know, like having a pinata or setting the burning man on fire or something like that. It's just like a it's like a thing that the crowd aren't shocked because one, it's not a real person. I mean, that's the that's the fundamental reason they're not shocked. But two, it's just it's just kind of like a monster and the you know, it represents blood. But really, it's it's kind of silly pageantry and it's no more shocking than 
seeing somebody, you know, uh, an actor come onto a stage and drive a plastic sword into somebody dressed as a dragon. You know, it's it's, it's just sort of silliness. And, and, and so we, you know, I kind of faked out the reader in a way that I think is mostly tedious by going like, oh, and hopefully I'm doing some world building. I guess I'm trying to set up that this world has like some history of them killing demons or something like that uh, or killing things that they considered to be demonic or other. And that's what they, that's what it kind of establishes through what has become a sanitized ritual but is it good or, or is it just confusing hmm surprisingly light i don't know like i would say if you want to establish that it's why keep the fake out that long why not say surprising craftsmanship which immediately like helps us establish more clearly that it's a fake is a dummy Surprising, surprising, excellent craftsmanship this year. Surprise, you know, almost, you could almost believe it was real. Could go in if we want to be sort of incredibly boink on the nose. Boop. She marched to the edge of the balcony. Did she march? Did she, didn't she just walk? I think she, she probably strode to the edge of the, the balcony. To the edge of the balcony. To the edge of the, not, what cartilage? She strode. Did she? What, do we need to get? Do we need to know that she's? I mean, we were. I guess I'm trying to establish that she's on a balcony. That's the point. But like, and, and brandished it at the crowd. Citizens of Ret Visa. I don't even know how to pronounce that word. Right. So that's a going to be a, a problem. She said, her voice booming across the square. So she's not strictly speaking just saying she's she bellowed her voice booming across that would be better i don't normally like terms other than said but i think if something it's to do with volume like whispered or shouted i think sometimes that's not always clear i now declare the 13th annual Kriggs fest open so there's something cheesy about introducing the name and then the name of the festival one after the other it it just feels a bit world buildy it feels and it's early in this and it's giving us some proper nouns and it just it feels it does feel like somebody writing a bit of fantasy is what i think there you know it feels like someone introducing us to some terms and i know most fantasy novels do it and most get away from it get away with it but it still makes me cringe every time I fucking read it. It just seems so pat, you know? I don't know. I don't like that. I just don't like it. And I And why should we give why should we give a shiny shite? <laughs> like that's my as an opening bid. Who gives a fuck? Oh great, she's a set with who where's the tension? Oh oh she's we thought there's a child, but it's not, it's a ceremony. Who gives a shiny shite? Why are we watching this? How is this a, a characterful opening bid? I'd, I would argue it's not. 
like maybe in a movie. Stunk. And you see the head roll down and you can see, I mean, in the movie, you'd see immediately it was fake. And then she holds it up. Yay! And then she she tossed the dripping head underarm. They fell on it like wolves. There's like a missing bit there where I'm trying to say she she tosses the dripping head into the crowd. They fell on it like oh they're so evil. One they fell on it like wolves. What a fucking awful cliche tip past Tim. They fell on it like the plague. Shut up. That's bad. That is shit. Secondly, what am I trying to... Better, it's like what I want is he kind of tosses it into the crowd and people go to catch it and maybe a kid on someone's shoulder catches it and it's like, yay, I got it! And it's like people clap good-naturedly because it's like a bouquet or it's like catching catching the first pitch. No, no, you do the first pitch of baseball. It's like catching a baseball that goes into the crowd and you get to keep it. It's like, it's, it's just a cute thing. But I'm like being like, oh, look at these. And I know what I'm doing. I'm trying to like nod to the reader and go, beneath the seemingly innocent pageantry of this kingdom, queendom, monarchy, is the dark stain of imperialism, which is bad. And you need to read a book to know that because most readers coming to fantasy think that unelected monarchs ruling as dynasties for years and years and years unopposed is brilliant like no they don't like why are we still doing fucking books going i think i think that actually kingdoms are a bad thing we know what who are your readers that do who who are your readers that think otherwise I've got an idea. I'm going to do this uh, fantasy book and uh, you may discover by the end of it that colonialism is not quite as brilliant as you first thought. Wow, that's a fucking hell. You serious? You're saying that colonialism was a was overall a bad idea, that that it was a fucking human rights catastrophe and involved loads of evil. I would have never have guessed that was not my political position coming into this. Of course, like, why? Like, you need to get down to characters at some stage. You can't just fucking start the whole thing off going oh, hand wringing about the fact that it's why not get into character instead of all this fucking world building on world building on world building and winking. Who gives? There's not there's no tension. Except to kind of like, except something like the fucking, I hate to say it again, but like Bright, where the whole thing is like, can you believe this world? Here's a, uh, here's a bad neighbourhood. But instead of ethnic minorities glaring at you, it's orcs. Can you believe it? Yeah, I, I, I can, I can certainly believe that a bunch of very wealthy largely white people in Hollywood commissioned and wrote and shot this, yeah. Um, Out of the decapitated corpse began to flow steaming ruby red glog. I don't mind the name glog and gloggy. I've just taken Scandinavian terms for kind of 
kind of like something equivalent to mulled wine. It ran down the chute and filtered through the basket into an enormous wooden trough. So like I'm kind of going, hey, it's actually this is actually a kind of goofy Renaissance fair kind of affair. She pulled her cloak around. But I just again, who cares? She pulled her cloak around her and turned from the crowd. So that is the that's simple. And it's the first thing like a characterful gesture where she's not in her queenly role. She pulled her cloak around her and turned from the crowd. Music had started up. I don't know what up adds there. Martial tunes on flutes and drums. That's quite simple and we're getting that it's a... I, I feel again that I'm like hammering the idea that, oh, well, this is actually quite a violent past, this kingdom. <laughs> I'm a British person who has mixed feelings about the empire and feels guilty yeah of course right i i i feel like i'm hammering that in a way that's not very interesting for the reader you can do that look write your amazing novels that talk about the horrors of colonialism but what i'm taking the piss out myself for here is that is not enough on its own you can't just do that and expect the that to be revelatory to the reader it can only be a context in which character happens. Otherwise, you're just jaying off and ask people asking people to pay you for the for the privilege of watching you have a slow self-congratulatory wank while, while, while saying to them, Am I not principled? <laughs> no, you just give me a story for Christ's sake. She pulled, yeah, so um, an orderly dressed in long furs passed a ladle through the pungent liquor. Well, that's fucking burly si uh, detective syndrome there. The pungent liquor. Right, like an orderly dressed in long fur furs passed a ladle through the glog or through the hot wine or whatever it is. Not pungent liquor. Just call it glog again. Pungent liquor. Well, you call it at least a pungent wine and we'll just stick with that through the pungent glog. Just don't keep calling it different things. Pungent liquor. And I know, like, I'm trying to say to the reader, this is what it is. So just in case you don't know, this is what it is. But I just... I just sound like a, a dog that ate, ate a thesaurus and is shitting it out page by page. And decanted it decanted it into a mug glog your majesty unattributed dialogue we've got no idea who the fuck is saying that yes it's the orderly but why not say your majesty he said just put a he said on the end just to make it sure oof now you're talking we don't so her first word that we say so immediately i get what i'm doing here i'm trying to change her register now you're talking she says doesn't sound like the kind of thing a monarch would say. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a chipper and it's, I, I don't know, like it feels like I'm trying to make a kind of caper and wink at the audience to get their approval and I don't like it. It doesn't feel like a person that I care about. It feels like I'm trying to make a... All those awful things that people write about, I'm going to say it, strong female protagonists that they're like, you know that they're that they're feisty. 
the, you know, like she's saying, she's saying things that don't 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 befit her rank, and she likes it. She likes a drink. Oh no, how cool, how kickass! Come on, is that good? Is this is this good? You know, maybe it would be better if it was a if this was a dude and he was less likable. Why not have the fucking guts to start something off with an asshole? Why not make this guy very killable? Why am I making her likable? You know, I think there's something more misogynistic about have creating a female character and then immediately making her dance like a fucking organ grinder's monkey to try and earn the reader's approval in a way that I would never think of doing if this was a king. I would make him a fucking asshole. I would make him do bad things. I would make you, as a reader, be praying for his painful death. Make him a prick. And then, if we stick with him through the story, get, I mean, give something, some tension, some interesting interest and some stakes. But then we feel fucking wrenched into bits if, as the story goes on, we start feeling invested in his welfare. But do not start off with this kind of, like... Like, making her... the fucking... PE teacher in a finishing school... And come on, girls, come along. Let's, you know, like marching out with, you know, great biceps and being assertive and cool and just absolutely super likable because she doesn't take shit from anyone. Is that good? Or is that just playing into a sort of lazy stereotype that doesn't ask us any anything of us as a reader? Am I immediately making people sort of like go, hey, monarchy can't be all that bad because look at this character. Oof, now you're talking. She could do with a little something to take the edge off the evening's bite. So she likes it. She likes her wine. So immediately I've gone into my, one of my first one of my immediately I've committed my two least favorite fucking stereotypes of grimdark, which is having something that's like, can you handle it? The child got decapitated. There's just... That would disgrace a teenager's fucking attempt at horror stories, which is what this basically is. And then secondly, wine. That you just go, hey, you want a character to be likeable and seem like a little bit rough around the edges? Just have them have a... Whenever, whenever you are unsure about what they should do, have them say, I could do with a bloody wine. I don't. Uh, there's nothing I like more than a than a a a, a, gla a cup of probably a mug, a mug of fucking wine. Yeah, I swore. You, you know what? You know what? The only thing I like more than wine is breasts, naked breasts, and wine. That's me. And and uh, and murdering, probably murdering murdering people who are uh, a weak, who I or I perceive as a threat. Those three, would be my top three. I haven't got an order for them. Like, is that, is this good? So, like, 
Snowflakes shone in the peachy glow of witch lights hanging from stalls, and the ground was covered in fresh powder that squeaked beneath her boots. So I'm not sure that she's moving at this point, so maybe I'm trying to fit too much in, but like, snowflakes shone in the peachy glow of witch lights hanging from stalls. I like that. That's a good, that's a good description. What are witch lights? Who gives a shit? We don't need to know. They're a form of illumination. I've not capitalised witch lights. So the the, it, the the story isn't like punching you in the ribs and going, witch lights are a part of the uh, world building. Notice this invention. They're not lights. They're witch lights. Yes, I could have said lantern and it would have achieved the same thing, but it's witch lights. Woo. Are you not entertained? Fuck off. But that's all right. I don't mind that at all. Ground was covered in fresh powder that squeaked beneath her boots, but she's not moving. She's not moving at this point, so we don't need to add that extra detail. Well done, Tim, for trying to appeal to... And, and it's true that fresh snow does make that kind of, like, creaking. It's more like a creaking noise, isn't it? Beneath your boots. But she's not moving at that stage. She reached for the mug. A bony-fingered hand slapped it from the orderly's grasp. Seldom. Are you out of your fucking mind? So the Queen is saying that, but there's unattributed dialogue. And we don't know who seldom is we don't know that Sel seldom is not a real person's first name so it sounds like someone's going she's saying i do like wine seldom as in rarely have it so it's really confusing and then what i'm trying to do here clumsily is introduce the character of seldom her chamberlain but i've just had oh it's so that's just poor right so seldom knocks the, the wine cup from the orderly's grasp. The old man, which is seldom, and I'm just describing it in a different way to make it maximally confusing that this is actually seldom, produced a red handkerchief with a flourish. The old man could be the fucking orderly still, right? Like, we don't know that. With a flourish, I wiped his dripping nose. It might have been poisoned, Majesty. I watched him draw it from the trough. So that's the queen there. A thin cloating on the ladle itself, Majesty, or in the mug. So I, what I do think is good is that Seldom is introducing the possibility that people might want to murder the Queen. That's fucking cool. And maybe making us think the same. And the and we've establishing that the Queen does not see things that way. She doesn't think that she's likely... And she's tired of constantly being told that she's going to be... Oh, someone's going to murder me. But they're not doing it. No, don't stop being paranoid, Seldon. There's no assassins. You see assassins everywhere. That's the tension here. And that's like a character-on-character character tension. It's interesting... It does feel a little bit like the Princess Jasmine-style trope of, oh, when will you stop trying to find me a, fa a husband, fa uh, father? You know, like, where, please, can I leave the palace? It's th That's the an issue that it's kind of like playing into. But I, I like, I like the idea that, like, that the ladle could be poisoned or, the, or like, that there could be this coating. That's interesting. 
Hopefully, if you do it well, that gets the reader starting to think about ways this character could be poisoned because there's no way you have got to this bit of the story, this opening, without knowing that this character, this monarch, dies quickly. Like, you, I do not think you could have picked this book up, this putative book, without knowing that. So we know they've got a target painted on them and, and that we're just highlighting the tension here. And then the interesting thing about the first chapter is how are they going to die? And we should be watching then. And Seldom knows a fucking a fuck lot about poisons, apparently. So how does he know that? Those things are interesting to me. In case you think I'm just like performatively dunking on my own work here. Like, I get the positive intent behind that. And I think that's all right as an idea and as a tension. I just think I've completely sharted my own breeches in trying to pull it off. That could be true of literally anything. She slammed a palm down on the wooden rain railing surrounding the balcony. It's not sure that wooden railing is quite... Anyway, knocking snow down into the square below. I could have emphasised the distance. It'd be cool if they were really fucking high up. I think you, we've got, just got no particularly interesting vi visuals here. This, for example, she means the railing, but that's not clear, might be absolutely lousy with spider venom. Now, mentioning that it's spider venom, I think isn't that bad, actually. One, I think I could have called it Iraq venom or something like that, or some bullshit like that. I think the fact that there is a type of spider venom, like, I, you know, we're not that the, they would know about. But also this is like, for those of you who've listened to previous episodes, Mother Nidus of the... Um, I can't remember the name of the church now, but like there's a spider church, right? Spiders are like... And webs are part of this world. And that brings someone else into the frame if you're like looking for possibilities. But we know that like spiders, poison... Like the idea that like you could get hold of a shitload of spider venom in this world. And it's a, a poison that could poison you on contact. Um, except it's not quite, because the Queen obviously doesn't know quite as much as she thinks she does. Seldom blinked over his spectacles regarding the rail. In his outsized fur-trimmed coat and hood, he rather reminded her of a baby vulture in its nest. I'd cut the word rather. I'd cut the world regarding the rail, that's no point, but seldom blinked over his spectacles. In his outsized, fur-trimmed coat and hood, he reminded her of a baby vulture in its nest. That's a good image, man. I like those lines. And, you know, like, we're kind of, I think, subtly and nicely kind of putting seldom in the frame. He's the first person we've introduced, which I think in any kind of murder mystery style thing... That's always the person who is going to be the most likely, uh, the most one most likely to have done it because it feels the fairest. And you hopefully you introduce them to the reader before the threat has even become obvious. But I've you know I've just used a simile that's quite threatening. Now baby vulture. What's nice about that as a simile is baby vulture. It's like oh he's harmless but he's a vulture. It's kind of ridiculous, but he's a vulture. A bird that, what does it do? It circles the dead. Like, 
I'm, I'm not like going, hey, I'm such a fucking genius here. I'm just saying that's apt. And I'm happy to be cool with something if I think it's good. I like that as an image. So that is fine. Spider net venom denatures on contact with the air within three minutes, Majesty. And you're wearing your gloves. Like, I think that's a, a line where seldom we learn something about him. Like, he seems to know a lot. I think it also gives me a little bit more authority as a, an author because I've used this term denatures on contact with the air within three minutes. That sounds plausible to me that, like, you've got if you've got some venom that's in a uh, spider's fangs, it's not made to hang around for ages. It's in, it's an injected poison in its natural form, right? Um, but it makes me sound like I might know something about poisons. I don't, but like it just it's just specific enough. We understand what denatures means more or less. Stop you know, what he's saying is that like you couldn't spread poison on a on a rail like that. It wouldn't work because it would it would just become neutral too quickly. And so he knows something he knows a bit about poisons and you're wearing your gloves. So he's like being quite pointed and he's able to say things like that. Honestly. So she sounds a bit like tedious and petulant. Without thinking, she went to cover her face with her palm. Seldom winced. She thrust her hand towards him, wriggling her fingers. Ooh, poison. Maybe. I don't know. Like That's supposed to be like a goofy bit. But it just feels a bit goofy that doesn't really... I don't really care about this queen. That's the, that's the worst thing. I don't really care about her welfare. My sole animating principle is the interests of our nation, Majesty. Right, so that is like a very Disneyfied, Pixar-ish moment of me. And I know these doesn't immediately scream either of those things. But having a character bluntly state what they want. If you can get away with it. It's not believable dialogue. But I think... It's sometimes nice to have characters be honest. He, he's saying, what I want more than anything else is to help this nation. He doesn't say to look after you. That to me is pretty... Not, not cool, because it's going to sound like I'm bigging myself up now. I feel bad, but like... I think that's a neat it that's an important distinction is he doesn't say my mission in life is to keep you safe majesty he doesn't say that it's implied that by looking after the sovereign is looking after the country but what he says is he, he cares about the country more than anything else which includes by implication her so he's totally in the frame for being a murderer or being part of it as your chamberlain Nobody really says that. But at least it establishes his role. I, I sort of would give myself that. I have a... Right. Uh, Abraxia stepped up to the trough and shrugged off her cloak. Someone hold my hair back. I'm going in. Again, I'm just trying to make her... Like a cool girl. And I think this might be a bit naff. Like... Like, I don't know. Like, maybe I'm overthinking it. But I just feel like she's maybe... I'm making her, like performatively feisty in a way that may, maybe is I wouldn't do with a dude and I think maybe that's and again I'm not being like a hand 
hand-wringing progressive and going, oh, I'm, I must confess my sexism in front... This is my own misogyny that I can't... But I... I don't know. Would I do... Would I have a guy go, right, I'm going in. I might have, like, a side character who is kind of like a Lord Flashheart-style joke character. But it just seems like I'm trying to go... You know, it just seems a bit like not like the other girls-ish, you know? I don't mind someone drinking wine and being, you know, assertive and not giving a shit, but it all seems so performative in this bit. I just don't trust my own motives. An orderly stepped in and began gathering her hair from about her shoulders. At least that's there's something a little bit funny that, like, she says this and the orderly just take... Like, she maybe she didn't mean... Maybe she didn't mean it. You know, maybe she... But, but like, the orderly starts taking her hair. Stop that at once. So seldom now, I think it's kind of gone into kind of parody. It's a bit Disneyfied in the sense of, like, I'm the bumbling Chamberlain. And, uh, can I? I mean, you can't be that surprised if these two have been together, you know, if he's been looking after her for that long. She must have known he was going to do that. This just seems like a bit... That, that seems a step... Began, Selden began shuffling towards them, swatting at the air. Her Majesty obviously isn't being serious. So at least we know that the stop that at once is directed at the orderly. You would never dare say something like that to the Queen. I am deadly serious. If you take another step, I shall make you sing ballads in the Fool's Tourney as a penance. Look, I'm sure there is a Fool's t- Tourney, but I, I just... That feels like some very fucking thin gruel world building wise. That's the kind of thing that I read in someone else's novel. Like, could you not do any better than that? Like, I know it's like, oh, like, oh, there's a fool's tourney where they sing. But maybe there's like a maybe that's like their equivalent of like a gong show. Okay, seems legit, but. I don't know. I just don't think people speak to each other like that, even in this heightened version of it. And and it's just so... And it's kind of nicey-nice. Like, she's being, like, barbed, but not... It doesn't have teeth. This is... This is a very defanged monarchy, you know? And you, she turned to the fellow clutching her hair. If I don't come up within ten seconds, pull. That's a good line. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Majesty. So that's quite funny. That last bit. She looked down at her reflection in the swirling wine. Orange segments and cinnamon sticks bobbed to the surface, erupting from her face like boils. That's a good image. The heat of the rising steam. I don't think you need to say of the rising steam. The heat felt... The heat of the rising steam felt pleasant against her cheeks. You could just say the heat felt pleasant against her. The damp heat felt pleasant against her cheeks. Her nostrils tingled with the heady mix of spices. Her double grinned. How good it felt to be alive. She dipped her head and drank like a horse. I certainly think how good it felt to be alive is a nice... I know it's like very ironic. But So like I think actually talking through this... I do feel like I just want to have another stab at that. And I do feel like the tone for Queen Abraxia. It's just all very... The crown. You know? 
It's like, look at me, shackled by duty, but sometimes I say something a bit cheeky. I'm the quick... I mean, who gives it... Really? Like, it ends up being an 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 apologia, really. Like, I'm, I'm desperately trying to make this monarch caper for the audience like a monkey to make them like her. And I don't want you to... I would like to write an asshole. And not a sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves style. Actually, we really think this is a very funny, witty, charismatic villain. And I don't mean as well just like someone who is being... Burn down the orphanage, I'm bored. You know, that's not what we're looking for. We just want... I mean, someone who finds being a a monarch fucking boring and they're pissed off. But... Someone who has contempt for their subjects, I think, would be nice. Someone who has contempt for the people around them. Someone who has, you know, humanity somewhere in them, because we all do. When they're looking into the wine and their image looks back at them, what do they see? You know, they feel resentful and they feel grim. But I don't want to kind of, hey-ho! A kind of Mr. Toad style joke. I think in England we spent so long kind of performing the upper classes, making them not comic grotesques, but just sanding their edges off as as kind of like comic idiots. That we we don't really get kind of I think you dehumanise people you actually give them a kind of free pass, and I'm not happy with that opening. And talking it through with you, I, I think I know why. And I don't think I've been overly critical of that. You know, I, I think you know I identified lines that I was like, yeah, no, no, that nails it, or that's pretty good. You know, that's good enough for me to pass. And I, but I'm not happy with it. And I think I'm going to have a go go back through it. And I'd like to write it as a male character. I'd just like to have a go at that. Uh, I don't think the gender of them is the most important aspect of them by any means. But I think I might have a better chance of... of not... I I mean, there's probably a failing of me as an author, but just not reflexively trying to make them likeable if I I make make it a guy. And I think also I need to see them facing a conflict right from the off. Can't do like a joke beginning. We just need to... What's the conflict? What is the conflict that he faces on line one? Someone petitioning him? I don't mind if there's like a festival going on, but what what's the issue that he faces? Could be something very small could be something to do with his outfit but it has to go to the heart of what this book's 
about you know i think that opening thing even if it's a tiny you know even if it's just a thread pulling a loose thread in the literalist sense like he's got a loose thread on his garment um that he wants to deal with and it's irritating him but it has to speak to something about his character and it has to make us feel engaged I don't know, like maybe he could be hiding, but from his responsibilities and that's, you know, creates a bit of opening tension, but that might make him too likeable. I'm just. Maybe he is enjoying sort of intimidating someone. You know, some servant or something like that. And so we see him being not very nice. I just think. Yeah, maybe we see him abusing his power in some way. And not in a... But I just don't want it to be super grimmed up because I fucking hate that genre so much. And I think everyone's sick of it. Well, I hope they are anyway. But I just want... I just want it to be interesting. As an opening, you know? And then if he is the person who if it's a he, ends up getting resurrected to solve the kingdom's problems. It's like, this is the worst possible person you could have chosen. And then maybe through the... And then we get to see a proper character arc. And they may never be a good person, but they may... sort of end up... you know, making the right decisions. I don't know. That's where I am for now. I'm going to go away and have a think about this. And then I might just have another go at writing it. Or I might make a couple of notes. Or I probably will spend 10 minutes just making a few notes and possibilities about what this opening scene could be. And then I'll have another go at writing it. But thank you for sitting with me for this long. I hope some of that was interesting. If you enjoyed today's episode, um, then please do share it. And subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from um, and if you enjoy the show and you'd like me to be able to keep doing it then the show is entirely uh, kept going by the support and generosity and kindness of listeners by the nature of the show you know it's it's it's, it's quite a niche but lovely and loyal and engaged audience and I just am so so grateful for I'm constantly amazed by the support and help of uh, um, of you basically so thank you and if you'd like to support the show you can go to my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare um, there's a link in the show notes and, and drop me a few beans you can also if you want to uh, there's also the possibility of signing up for um uh repeat donations monthly or something like that um there's no uh there's no free swag for doing that it's um just something i always want the show to be free to, at the point of on all the content i make to be for, for free at the point of um use to anyone who wants it because there's too many barriers in front of people who want to um do writing to begin with and so i want everything that I create to be a resource that's open to every writer regardless of the resources they've got to spend on it but if you do happen to have 
um, you know, the price of a coffee that you'd be willing to um, chuck towards the show, I can promise you it all goes towards my ability to spend time doing this and to pay my hosting costs. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's done that. Right, end of that. I hope um, this was okay. Do get in touch and let me know what you think. If you can get in touch with me via my website, timclebpoet.co.uk, there's a little box that says contact me. I'd love to know what you thought of today's episode and how, you know, if you're following the the how to the writing a novel episodes where you'd like to see it go next, but I'm going to try and stick with it. I hope that was okay. Phew, I'm going to go and have a glass of water now. Take care, be well, and I wish you a wonderful week of writing.